This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. The first question is this, God spared Noah, Isaac, and many others through the story of Scripture. Whom does Paul say that he did not spare, and why did God not spare him? How does Romans 8 emphasize the security of God's love for his believers? Jonathan, This passage is so encouraging. God's mercy in sparing many shows all the more powerfully his love for us when he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Romans 8.32 brings that powerfully out because his death was substitutionary and sacrificial, the innocent on behalf of the guilty. God could be just and still justify sinners who turn to him. Christ's death not only satisfied all of God's justice, it also opened for us the fountain of grace that, so that through him, he will give us everything else. What great love the, the apostle describes. What sacrifice. And because of that love, we have a security. That means we can't be separated from the love of Christ. The Father will not condemn us since he's already condemned his son on our behalf. And that would be double jeopardy. Christ will not condemn us for he died for us in the first place. And now is, after his resurrection, he intercedes for us even when we struggle. Paul goes on to say, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Death, life, angels, demons, fears for today, worries about tomorrow, not even all the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth beneath. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death can't. The devil can't. Present sentence can't. Future failures can't. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's amazing love. What security we have. Second, for whom does Paul pray for salvation in Romans 10.1? And according to Paul, how are people saved and who can be saved? One of the most clear passages of the gospel is Paul's burden for Israel that it's expressed through Romans 10. He sees the spiritual condition of his own people, Israel, and longs for them to be saved. He makes clear that these Jews are good people, moral people, sincere people, but and they're even seeking God. But he says they they reject the righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And his burden for them grows because he understands God's mercy, his grace, and the depth of his gospel. He says that that even though Jews are sincere seekers, they have to repent and believe in Christ, for He alone fulfilled the law, both in His death and His life. That Jesus, He says, is that that He was our substitute, that Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. And, And what a powerful statement that is. The Jews don't have to depend upon the law because Christ has fulfilled the law. Paul explains that there are only two ways of salvation which sounds strange, but it's either keep the law all the time and never break one command or by faith in Christ, a faith that openly declares that Jesus is Lord with all that such a confession means. In other words, Lord means He is Yahweh. He is 
my master, he is my king. It means all that. And a heart trust that God indeed raised him from the dead. This salvation is for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the covenant name of God, because Joel quotes, because Paul is quoting Joel 2. In order to call on him, however, they have to believe. To believe, they have to hear about Christ. To hear, someone must tell them, and those who tell them must be sent. This glorious chain of human responsibilities, send, go, proclaim, hear, believe, confess, and be saved, demonstrates God's plan of salvation for the nations and the privilege of human involvement in that plan. One of the things that occurred to me, I think last year for the first time when we were reading this, is when he says that, uh, they must be sent, the, the preacher must be sent. I've always thought of that in terms of God sending, and, and certainly God sends. But in Romans 15, he asks for Rome's help as he makes his way to Spain. So we see that God intends that his churches would be active in promoting his gospel going to the nations. Absolutely. The next question how is God using the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke the Jews, and why should Gentiles not boast? How does Paul summarize God's wisdom and glory? First, Paul makes clear that God's not done with the Jewish nation. They are not beyond hope. He said, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. Second, God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but God wanted His own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles are enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. God is not done with Israel, and God is using Gentiles to provoke Israel to Christ. But that doesn't mean Gentiles should boast. Paul notes, you Gentiles also received the blessing God promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch. You're not the root. God has saved Gentiles through the work of the Jewish Messiah and the witness of the Jewish apostles. They cannot boast, for their roots are Jewish. The scriptures, the apostles, the gospel, the Messiah even the sacrificial system. And when, when God dealt with the Jews, it is a warning that he could deal with Gentiles equally. But as we summarize his wisdom and glory, Paul reaches once again to a peak of a pinnacle of beauty. And in fact, really, there's no, there's no better thing for me to do than to read it. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. This is... This is typical of Paul. Paul's the great theologian. Much of our theology comes from Paul in the epistles, but Paul was one who worshipped. Amen. He was always just right on the verge of breaking out into doxology like this, and it's just a reminder that you know theology is not just for us to make our heads swell. You know, it's it's to warm our hearts to the truths of who God is. 
This is kind of the theme verse of CBT. According to Paul, why were the scriptures written? And how does Paul base his mission on scripture? And where then does he seek to preach the gospel? CBT and Ava especially lives on this verse. It's our heart verse. Because the scriptures were written to instruct us, to give us perseverance and comfort, and thus to fill us with hope. Hope floods our hearts when we learn the ways that God worked in the hearts of his people and when we see that they survived and that they thrived, and we know so can we. And when we hear God's word speak peace to our troubled hearts through his big story, watching the stories of the people of God floods our hearts with hope. Now, the Hebrew scriptures are called the Tanakh because they divide into three great divisions. The law of Moses, the Torah, that T, the former and latter prophets, the Nabim, the N, and the writings which includes the Psalms, Proverbs, Chronicles, others, called Ketuvim. And so this is Tanakh. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy in the Torah, Psalms in the writings, and Isaiah in the prophets to, to show his mandate to take the gospel to the Gentiles. His passion is actually twofold. He desires first to preach the good news to the Gentiles and then to take the gospel to Gentile territory where it was not known before, as he states in 1520 and 21. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. Even this desire arises in Paul's heart from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah as he introduces the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 52 and 53. Next, in what ways do believers team up with unbelievers, and why does God forbid it? Well, in both Corinthian letters, Paul deals with this issue. In his first letter, he addresses such actions as marrying unbelievers, eating meat at an idol's temple, going to secular courts against brothers, and even consorting with those who deny the resurrection, chapter 15. But in his second letter, he warns specifically about this uh, and many other ways. He commands the church, and thus all of us, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be partnered with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are temples of the living God. Because we're God's temple, any communion with unbelievers defiles that temple, that includes dating relationships, business partnerships, marriages, and even church functions that give believers a place, unbelievers a place of service. Next, what is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and what is true repentance? As we mentioned a minute ago, in his first letter, Paul addressed several sins that threaten the health and work of the church, including schisms, elevating men or their teachers, acting according to the flesh, evaluating people by wrong standards, taking believers to court, eating meat offered to idols, and bringing shame at the Lord's Supper. He only requests church discipline, however, for one issue, a man apparently having physical relations with his stepmother. For this sin which even Gentiles did not practice according to the text. Paul rebuked the church because they were tolerating this sin, and he commanded that they turn the man over to Satan to destroy the body so that the soul could be saved. Apparently, the church did act, and the man was grieved enough to repent. 
Paul describes this repentance in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, I'm not sorry that I sent a severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have, so you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Now, the difference between these two, Jonathan, is the difference between Judas' regret over his actions and Peter's repentance over his sin. Judas tried to give the money back, but he never went to Christ. Peter, on the other hand, went to Christ and was restored. And lastly, when addressing the Ephesians, how does Paul describe his ministry and his one message? What does Paul regard as central to his ministry? In Acts 20, Paul is on a journey to Jerusalem, but he can't avoid seeing his friends at Ephesus. He loves his brothers and sisters in Christ, and so he brings them to the shore. doesn't even go to Ephesus, but they come to him And when he does, he says this, he proclaimed the gospel above everything else. He said it was his one message. When he spoke to these leaders, he said, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering will lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. In this amazing paragraph, Paul tells the believers that his one message and his central purpose is to make the good news known of God's wonderful grace. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. May. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.